about how that uh, when you got saved, you were adopted spiritually into God's family. And then the time coming in the future when the rapture of the church takes place, that we will be adopted physically. And we've laid those two things out and, and showed you in the process an incredible amount of information that helps on different subjects in the Bible. And we got into Romans chapter 8, verse 26, 27, and 28 last week, which really deals with the aspect of prayer. And uh, I want to read that for you, and, uh, and if you want to turn to that, we're going to be jumping around a little bit this morning, but we'll start here. It says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Now, Father, we thank You and praise You for the Lord Jesus. We ask You today to open up our hearts. We ask You, Lord, first of all, to allow us to cleanse ourselves uh, under the blood of Christ, that nothing would stand in the way today of what You have for us. Lord, we pray that we'll look inside our hearts and ask Christ to forgive us and put us under the blood of anything that would keep us from receiving Bible doctrine today. And we love you. We thank you for our church. We thank you for the great men and women that you've given us and for the host of ministries that you provided us to serve you through. And we do love you, Lord, and we ask you to take this time and bless us now. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. I told you last week about the, we talked about the many misconceptions people have about God and the Word of God. And I showed you here that in this particular passage, that the greatest thing that, or the number one thing that I personally understand about prayer is I don't know how to pray. And that's the number one problem. I told you that we have three infirmities listed in the Bible. One of them is the infirmity of our flesh. One is the infirmity of forgetting what God has done in our lives. And the third one is the fact that we do not know how to pray. Those three are listed separately for you, and you're told that those three things are the struggles. And I told you last week, every problem we have as a Christian, every problem we have, every struggle we go through will be a, either based on one of those three or a combination of them, and many times all three of them in our lives. And last week we looked at some of the misconceptions people have about prayer. And I told you last week, and we got most of them out of the way, we'll talk about some as we go through it, but I, I told you first of all that uh, God does not recognize or hear the prayer of an unsaved man or woman. We talked about why that is, and I went back and showed you how that, that uh, is laid out in uh, John chapter 8, verse 44 and other places. Then the second thing I showed you is the reason why God's people, uh, God doesn't hear most of God's people's prayers, uh, is because of the fact that uh, God's people don't understand the theory behind prayer. And I explained to you, and I think that was probably, for me anyhow, the greatest thing that come out of last week for me personally as I laid it out to you uh, was the aspect of the theory behind what we believe. It's not enough just to know the Bible. And a lot of guys, a lot of young ladies, they want to learn the Bible, but what you've got to begin to do is not only learn the Bible, but learn why things work the way they work in the Bible. The cause and the effect. Why something in the Bible is the way that it is and how it affects you uh, in our lives and everything that we do. We talked about the reason why uh, that most of God's people never get their prayers answered. And their prayers ba basically never leave the room where they're in. Because of an interesting story back in the Old Testament in the study of the tabernacle. 
and we laid it out on a board last week, and I showed you how that the tabernacle is a picture in the Old Testament. The tabernacle is a picture of our walk and our relationship with Christ. And you had the three courts. On the outer court, there was the brazen altar and the leaven of water where the priest washed his feet and the sacrifice was made. But when you went into that inner court, you find three pieces of furniture. And I told you that those three pieces of furniture represent what you have in your life that God works through in everything that you do. We talked about the first one was the, uh, the showbread and the manna or the, uh, or the showbread and the table that it was on and how that that bread is a picture of the Word of God. The second one was the seven-pronged candlestick, which was over on the uh, facing directly across from the bread. And that's a picture of the Holy Spirit of God and, and uh, how He deals and, and, and illuminates uh, the work on the Word of God for us. And then there was the altar of incense. The altar of incense was, a, was an altar that they actually burned incense 24-7. And just like the fire on the golden candlestick could never go out, the incense always had to be lit and always had to be burnt. It was the priest's job to keep those things going. And, uh, you know, you sometimes you think, well, what did those priests have to do? Well, they had to do a lot of things. Not only did they have to take care of the sacrifice and deal with the sacrifices, but they actually had to make the oil and make the uh, incense that had to be burnt. They had to bake the bread fresh every morning. There's a number of things that they did when you go through the book of Ezekiel. And I say again, Larkin's Dispensational Truth back there is, is, a, is an incredible book to help you understand how that uh, all transpired back in the Old Testament. But I showed you how that the altar of incense is a picture of our prayer life. And how that the, the problem was uh, Aaron, two of Aaron's boys went in to, to light that incense and they got, Bible says, strange fire. That strange fire, uh, for that, God killed them. And I showed you last week how that the strange fire was an incredible picture of why we don't get our prayers answered. You see, the fire for the incense, as the fire from the candles, uh, had to come from the brazen altar, showing you and me clearly that any prayer and any source point of prayer needs to be the understanding of what Christ did for you on Calvary's cross. Now, there's a reason for that, and we're going to talk about why that is so important. And I know many, many people, especially young Christians that don't maybe have a very good handle on the Bible, they look at something like that and they wonder, why did God do that? There's another story in the Bible that I think that is a, an interesting story the same way. It's over there in Samuel when they were bringing the ark of the Lord back to, uh, uh, back to Jerusalem, and they got it on an ox cart. Remember that story? And the Bible says that they, they're carrying it on an ox cart, and uh, the, ox, the ox stumbles. And the ark begins to fall, and a guy by the name of Uzziah reaches up and, and keeps that ark from falling over. And for, and for his dedication, for his attention to detail, for, for him, him, him stopping there and, and keeping that ark from hitting the ground, he got rewarded, God killed him. See? We read things like that, and we say, now, is God having a bad day? Was he just ticked off and wanted to kill somebody so Uzziah was the guy? No, no, no. There's principles behind everything like that in the Bible. First of all, first of all, that Ark of the Covenant was being carried on an ox cart. That's not the way God designed it to be carried. It was not ever designed to be on an ox cart. It was designed to be carried with staves on the shoulders of the priests. 
You know why? Because it's a picture, it's a picture of the aspect of Christ and the ministry, and you and I are supposed to bear the burden of that ministry on our shoulders. That's why. You know what it's a picture of? It's a picture of God setting up Christianity and the Bible the way that he wants it to be run, and then it's a picture of man coming in and saying, you know what? I think there's a better way to run a church than the old way that they used to do it a long time ago. It was by design the way it was supposed to be carried. And by design, a church is supposed to be what a church is supposed to be. And just like we find new ways to carry the ox cart, we find new ways now to have church. You don't like coming on Sunday morning? Hey, come on on Saturday night. You know what? Stay in and sleep on Saturday morning. We'll do the Catholic route. We'll go ahead and let you come on Sunday so you won't come on Sunday morning. Hey, you know what? It doesn't matter that the Bible says that they met principal on the first day of the week. Forget that. See? The church has become, in every sense of a bad way, all things to all men. And we, what we've done in churches today is that we have a book that lays out exactly the way a New Testament church is supposed to be run. But we're not going to put it the way that way. We're going to come up with a new idea and we think it's better. And of course, we see that in Uzziah's case, it wasn't better. And that's why when, when, when Aaron's two boys came and, and lit that incense, they didn't get the fire off the altar. They got strange fire, the Bible says, and God killed them for it. Because there's a principle involved. And this is why we, you and me, as God's people, most of the time, do not get our prayers answered and then running around wondering why. Because we don't understand the point source of your prayer life, the point source of everything you do and why you do it and the motive behind why you do it needs to be his death on Calvary's cross right there. We'll talk about that more, and that's not our message today. We'll move into that next week when we talk about some other things. But personally, last week, I think the greatest aspect that we talked about was the aspect of the theory behind why we do what we do. I don't want to just teach you only what's right in the Bible. That's not my goal. I don't want to just teach you the Bible. I have a goal of doing that. But you know the way I teach on Sunday morning, Thursday night, or you come over one-on-one with me. I'm not interested in just teaching you the Bible. But I am interested in teaching you the Bible and then showing you why the Bible does the things that it does the way that it does. The theory behind the Word of God. The theory behind it works. Just knowing things about the Bible is not enough. You need to know how these things work. Now, I want to today build on last week's message. And uh, we're going to have probably two more sessions after today on this because I want to thoroughly define prayer for you in every aspect. Now, last week we saw misconceptions. And I showed you uh, the bad ideas that God's people have because we don't have a Bible today anymore. Nobody reads it. Nobody understands it. Nobody studies it for themselves. And uh, so I showed you last week that how that when you have no truth, you have no doctrine, all the misconceptions come up that people struggle with, and then they wonder why they have some problems. And last week, I took the time, and in our foundational message, I showed you the misconceptions that people have in prayer. Now today, I want to deal with probably one of the greatest subjects that you're ever going to get into as a child of God. And that subject on prayer is basically this. How does God answer your prayer? How does God answer your prayer? 
If you want to have some fun sometime in your life, just ask the average Christian that question. And we're going to talk about today, and as we go through this, some more misconceptions about, but based on the subject of how God answers our prayers. And again, we see that this is another area that so many Christians haven't got a clue on. There's a theory, there's a method, there's a method behind how God answers your prayers, and you need to know that today. You know, I've been in this business now for over 30 years, and it it absolutely amazes me, the absolute fog that most of God's people live in. You know, uh, in Christianity, in most cases, we're all a bunch of little lab rats. You know, we're in this little maze, and this little maze represents life. And a lab rat, there's cheese at the end of that maze. And somebody's standing up and watching how smart that little lab rat is as he, he sniffs his way through the, little, through the little obstacle course, you know, and dead end here and a dead end there. And then he, he smells this way, and he's smelling the cheese, you see. And, and, and the scientists are standing there checking it all out, saying, all right, he turned to the left. He bumped his head twice on that one. He's not the smartest lab rat in the world. And, you know, and to watch that thing, and suddenly, after 20, 30, 40 minutes, an hour, in my case, it was four or five days, you know, he, he, he turns a corner and bang, there's the cheese. And that's the way a lot of us go through life. We try to sniff heaven out. And our life is just a little series of little bumps and, and, and turns. And uh, we're just like that little lab rat. And we get into a dead end. We turn around and we say, God, what, what, what's going on? And then we, we sniff another direction and we move around. And in all of our lives, we just, and what, what our hope is, what our real hope is that someday, at the end of our life, we'll turn the corner and it won't be a big piece of cheese, but it'll be a big heaven. See? There's really no difference. As God's people, we need to understand every aspect of our Christian life. And certainly the aspect of prayer. And it's absolutely amazing to me how much of a fog God's people... Uh, and, and I listen to people all the time. You've got to understand, my, not only my week, but my life is filled with people. And I've learned more from the people in my life over the years an equally amount uh, as I have from the Bible, because that's what God does. And some of you are, that are working with me in ministry, you're understanding what I just said. Because you know that, well, it, you know, once you get the Bible in you, and then you start working with other people, you learn as much from them as they do from you. I have a number of you come over every week, and you know my policy. Uh, anybody in this church can have an hour a week with me going through the Bible. And I know, you know, you'll always say the same thing when you leave. You thank me for how much you learned, you know, and you ask me all your little questions, and we have a great time, and, and it's a great time. And I look forward to it. It's a highlight of my week, spending time with you and helping you figure out the Bible. But you know what? I learn as much from you as you learn from me. There have been many times on our sessions where you saw something that I didn't see, or you laid something out that was a different angle from what I saw, and, uh, and, and it's a two-way street. It's a two-way street. But I, I learn a lot from people. My whole life has, has been tried to be that, that I don't try to have all the answers because I know I don't. And I know that I'm just like you. I'm not any better than you. I'm not any worse than you. And I know that you have things to teach me just like I have things to teach you. I made it very careful in my, my, in my ministry that I don't become one of these guys who think that I'm the guru of all the answers of problems in life. I am not. But I know the book that has all the answers in it. See? I know where to go. 
and, and, and I learn as much from you as you learn from me. And we go through this process. And I, I, I listen very carefully to what people say to me. When a man or a woman starts to tell me something in their life, I pay attention. I'm not somebody who just hears and moves on or doesn't hear. I listen to what people say because there's value in other people's lives and learning from them. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but there's always value. I'm always interested in when somebody begins to talk to me about something and they say, well, you know, God told me this. Or God is leading me to do this. Or God showed me this. Or God has called me. I listen very carefully. Because the truth of the matter is, and you need to understand this in your own life, the way God calls you and the way you respond to it and the way that you handle it and the way you pray about it and the way that you go through the process of finding out you're either going to be a little lab rat or you're going to be someone who understands the, how, how to work those things through in your life. And I always, get, I always get very interested in that because it always defines us where we're at. I tell, I've told you this story many, many times. And, and some of you in here would know this person. Uh, who go, you go back 10 or 15 years, you would know this person uh, if I said it. I never say his name. But I, I use this story as an example because it's such a great story. It is one of the greatest examples that I've ever found in my life. And here again, I didn't learn it from the Bible. I learned it from somebody else uh, who was in my ministry, who, uh, and it didn't turn out good for him, but uh, it was a lesson that I learned and I marked it down. Years ago, I had a man come into my office one Saturday morning, and he asked to see me. And this was a good kid. He was married, had uh, a little, uh, a little a baby girl, I believe it was. And he came into my office, and he came in, and he sat down, and he says, Bob, he says, he says I, gotta, I need to talk to you. And I said, well, fine, go ahead and talk. What can I do for you? And he said, I want you to know, he says, I have been offered a position uh, at another city. Now, if I remember right, it was St. Louis. He says, I have been offered another position in another city. And he said, it, it, within my own company. And he says, uh, that I work for. And he says, it's got more money. And he says, it's a, it's a greater, better job. And he said, you know, and I really struggled with the decision. And he said, you know what? I prayed about it. And once I, once I prayed about it and I got, I got the answer, he says, I wanted to come in and tell you what, uh, what, what, that I was moving. And now at this point, I'm enthralled. Because I already know that I have an infirmity. You know what my infirmity is? I don't know how to pray. Now, here's a guy who had a problem. He had to, he had to he, probably not a problem. He, he, he was getting another job. He was moving to another city. And now he's faced with a decision that's going to alter his life, alter his family's life, certainly alter his income, and for, in a better case this way. And, and he had to take that before God. And I said, can I ask you a personal question? Because we've been around for a while. He said, absolutely. He said, I said, can I ask you, just for my own understanding, how God gave you that answer? Now, I want you to know something, folks. I'm interested in how God answers your prayers. You ought to be more interested in me in your own personal life. But do you actually understand sitting here this morning, if I would call on you and have you stand up, could you tell me? How God answers your prayers? Stop and think about that for a moment. Now, here was his answer, classic answer. And I said, well, I said, how did God show you what he wanted you to do? I said, I, I got to know that. And he says, well, he said, here's how I figured it out. He says, I told God that 
I was going to put my house up for sale. And I really didn't know what he wanted me to do. And I said, God, here's the deal. I'm going to put my house up for sale. If you sell my house, I know you want me to go. If you don't sell my house, then I know you want me to stay. And he said, you know what? In two days, God sold my house and I got my answer. Now, he said that to me like he never understood that the devil also has his realtor's license. Now, two years later, two years later, he came back to Kansas City. He had lost his wife. He had lost his job. He had lost everything that he had. And he came back in to see me. And he, and he was actually repentant. He's a, he was a good kid. And he said to me, he said, you knew the day I was here that this was going to be a disaster for me, didn't you? And I said, yes, I did. That's why I asked you the question. Because you were making one of the most blunderous mistakes a young Christian could ever make. He said, then why didn't you tell me? And I said, because here's my policy. When you come into my office and you say, Pastor, I have a decision to make and I'm not sure what to do, would you help me, show me in the Bible how to make this decision? I would, be un I would go to the end of the earth to help you. But experience has taught me. When you come into my office and you say, Pastor, I've already made the decision. I'm not coming to ask you what to do. I'm telling to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm out of it. I used to have a white horse. The beautiful animal. Big, tall steed of a horse. Make the Clydesdale Budweiser horses that look like Shetland ponies. This was a beautiful horse. And in mornings when he'd come out on a cold day, he'd, he'd, he'd blow that snot out of his nose. Smoke would come out. And I'd get up on him, and I, I, could, I, could, I was so high, I could see all around me. And that white horse was what I rode into people's lives to try to save them from making disasters out of their life. I'd see somebody out there who didn't come to me, never said, Bob, would you help me? Bob, I don't understand. And I, I'd see them in a need. So what I would do, saddle up. <laughs> and I'd ride as fast as I could in the middle of their dilemma. And he'd rear back. And I'd hold on and I'd say, stop. Stop! Don't make that bad choice. I can't show you many times the jesters I got back. I'm sure you're all familiar with them. And after a while, I realized, you know what? Writing into somebody's circumstances and telling them what's right when they don't want to hear what's right, not a good thing to do. I don't have that horse anymore. <laughs> Shot that sucker. Took him out in the backyard, put a 45 automatic to his head and sent him to horsey heaven. That kid said to me, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you let me know? And I said, you know why? Because when you came in, if I would have told you what you didn't want to hear, we'd have just been enemies and we'd have had an issue over it. And I figure this, you know what? It's better that God show you what you got to learn the hard way because you wouldn't have listened to me anyhow. You wouldn't listen to me anyhow. There was a discipline problem here. It's like us. You know, some of us have tremendous financial problems. 
And really, you know what your secret prayer is? Win the lottery. You think, if I just had a million dollars, if I just had half a million dollars, if I just had two million dollars, boy, I would be just fine. And the problem is, and you've heard me say this before, the problem in our lives is we don't need more money. The problem is we just need to be more self-disciplined in the money we already have. If God came down and, if you know what, I heard old Mel Sabaka say one time, he says, he says uh, you know why you don't have a million dollars? Because God can't trust you with a million dollars. Now, don't get offense of that. I don't have a million dollars either. He can't trust me with it. The problem is doing something, doing something without understanding how it works is a disaster. And I'm telling you. I'm telling you, the devil's the greatest imitator of Christ you have ever seen in your life. And let me ask you a question. You think the devil can't, can't, can't sell your house? You think the devil can't take care of you and give you what you think God is giving you? Why, if the Bible says he's manifesting himself as an angel of light and there's churches down here that imitate him what makes you think there's a limit to his, his imitating Christ? Hey, there, I say it again. How does God answer your prayers? That's the question today. That's the question. Let me ask you a question. You suppose you have an issue in your life that you can't solve. A major decision that you've got to make. Something that's going to affect not just you, but your life. Your family, your wife. Maybe, you're, maybe, you, maybe you've got a situation where you're going through a bad marriage. Or maybe your issue is you have a problem with your kids. Maybe your issue is in the economy we have today, you've lost your job. Maybe your situation particularly, the issues you face is you're married uh, to an unsaved spouse. You know, somebody that uh, uh, you just, uh, you know, that uh, you, you've got... Married before you got in church, and now you find yourself in that situation. Some of you, maybe you have an, a, a, a substance abuse problem. Maybe you're an alcoholic. Maybe you have a drug problem. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe that's your issue. Maybe you just found out you got some incurable disease. Maybe you struggle every day of your life with your eternal security and wonder if you're still saved. And maybe you're like this guy a number of years ago that you're faced with a job location. Somebody's come to you and said, hey, you know what? We give you a better job uh, over here. Oh, you got to move. You see, this kid, he never went through the process. We didn't do a lot of things. But I'll tell you what he didn't do. He never stopped and asked the question one time. I wonder if there's a church over there that's going to minister my spiritual needs. You know why? Because to him, getting a promotion and making more money was important in that church. So when he got over there and made the switch, no church. So now he's got a great job, he's making more money, but he has no spiritual foundation for his family. And no, he tried for six, seven, eight months and finally wound up at some goofy church that had nothing to do with anything and then wonder why later he, he, he loses everything that he has. There's a theory behind how God answers our prayers. And in our second session today on, on how you need to know this, now, what would you do in these scenarios? Well, let me tell you what, what we do. 
And I'm not saying you versus me, because I already told you, I know my infirmity is I don't know how to pray. And I still, I mean, I've been in this business a long time, and I still screw it up. But let's, I'll tell you what we do. We're faced with an issue now. We're faced with an issue. And as a good Christian, we're going to pray. So we go to God and we pray. And you say, Lord, I say, Lord, help me. I'm faced with this scenario. Show me what I need to do. Now, how many times have we all been in that scenario? I'd like to ask this morning. I won't do it. But I'd like to ask this morning. I would just like to know, is there anybody that has never been in that scenario? Uh, We all have. And that's the question. How will God answer you in your particular scenario? There's a theory behind it that you need to understand how it works. Now, you go on, you pray, and in time, you get no answer. So you and me being a good Christian, and we read in the Bible someplace about fasting. You heard a sermon on it. You heard somebody say it somewhere, or you read a book. Or you talk to some other Christian. Well, I think maybe, you know, when you really get into a tough situation, God won't answer your prayer till you start fasting. So as a good Christian, you fast. Now, let me just say this. We could all use a little fasting every week. Which has nothing to do with prayer. But as a good Christian, you fast. You fast the first day. You fast the second day. That's it. I'm eating nothing. You know, I have a message that I'd love to preach to you today, and we don't have time to it. And we talk, but I would call it the fallacy of fasting. The fallacy of fasting. People reading the Bible about prayer and fasting and they automatically think if we fast that that will make God give me my answer. See, that's how we do it. And here's how it works. And I know how. I've been there too. I know how it works. Okay. He hasn't my problem. Here's how it'll work. If I don't eat, if I punish myself, God will see how sincere I am. He'll feel sorry for me. He'll see me down here, my stomach growling, headache. Like Esau, I'm going to die. I missed one meal. God, you're going to let me die? Answer my prayer. I got the shakes. I got a headache. My legs are weak. Now I'm getting sick to my stomach and I haven't even eaten. God, can't you see? Will you answer my prayer so I can go get a Big Mac? Don't you see how sincere I am? Don't you feel sorry for me? Don't you see how diligent I am? Answer my prayer. Nothing happens. Man said to me one time, uh, again, years ago. Well, I've heard it all my life. He says, I need an answer from God and, and he won't give it to me. So he says, you know what? I have now been fasting for four days. And I used Dr. Phil's answer. I says, and how's that working for you? So I ask him, because I listen. I listen. So I ask him, give me the definitive passage in the Bible on fasting and explain to me from those biblical defining passages what fasting really is and what it does. He didn't have a clue. 
Now, I'm just going to say it to you now, and we'll get in it a little bit later. Maybe not today, but next week. But I'll give them to you right now. Maybe you can read them. Psalm 69 and Psalm 35. They are the two definitive passages in the Bible that tell you unequivocally what fasting does. And ladies and gentlemen, fasting has absolutely nothing. Let me say it again. Nothing. One more time with fervor. Nothing to do with you getting your prayers answered. Not a thing. Now, I have fun with people when they get into situations like that. Kind of like I told you, you know, when I went to a Baptist church that thought they were something, you know, and was preaching there uh, down in Alabama or someplace years ago, uh, I, I, I talked about the rapture. And I said, you guys are all so smart and all so good in the Bible. I said, I'm going to talk about the rapture tonight. How many know, how many people know tonight what rapture you're going in? Because there's three in the Bible. You should law their eyes. See, they knew about the rapture, but they didn't know the rapture broken down into three parts. And so I say, well, I said, well, I said to this guy, I said, well, come on, you know why you didn't get your prayer answered when you're fasting? What, what, didn't you read all those other places? Don't you know that when you fast, you got to put on sackcloth and ashes? I mean, one piece of the puzzle don't solve it. You got to go to work tomorrow with a burlap suit. You're not going to put ashes on your forehead like Ash Wednesday. You're going to put them all over your hair and down over your face. And then your prayers will get answered. Because prayer and fasting always is associated with sackcloth and ashes. And I said, you, do, you, wanna, you wanna not eat, but you don't want to look the part. I said, you gotta go down the street, go to work in the morning, and walk into the office and say hello, and everybody says, Oh, you're fasting. I see you got your burlap suit on. <laughs> Could you step back a little bit? When you sneeze, those ashes get on me. Let me tell you something, folks. And I never speak condescending to anybody. I preach the truth. But let me just make a general blanket statement here for all Christianity involved in this. Doing something that sounds really godly when you don't know how it works is really pretty stupid. Let me ask, would you, if you get sick in the morning, you got a bad fever, and you got upset stomach, and you call your doctor, and your doctor says, well, I can't see you till next Monday. I'm booked up. And you say, well, I need to get in. I'm really sick. And he says, well, I'm sorry. We are booked up. I can't get you in. You hang up. This is what you do. Would you go over to the medicine cabinet and open it up and just start taking all the medicine that are in there because you read someplace that medicine makes you feel better when you're sick? You kill yourself doing that. And we think that prayer, we think that God has some obligation in a law someplace that when you pray that he has to answer you. And when he doesn't answer you, you know what happens? We get upset with him. No wonder he doesn't answer our prayer. We want it on our terminology, our time, not his. See? That's the way we work. And when we go through the little prayer and fasting routine, and we fast when we don't even know what fasting means in the Bible. You see the misconceptions people are under? Now, here's the million-dollar question, ladies and gentlemen, and I pose this to you again this morning. Here's the million-dollar question. How does God answer our prayers when we have a need? Send you a telegram? Do you go to bed at night and have a dream? 
You get out driving down the road in some morning and everything goes, big bright light, bright light shines and there's a vision. Or most people say, well, you know what? I just follow that still small voice down inside me. You ought to go back into Samuel and find out where that led somebody. You know what I've learned over the years? I learned in Christianity there's two concepts. 99% of God's people today are involved in things that are Christian and involved in things that are spiritual. But about 1%, maybe even less than 1% of God's people are involved in anything that is scriptural and biblical. I am certainly not interested this morning in Christian and spiritual. That is a whole realm of everything that gets people into trouble. What you ought to be interested in is not what is Christian, what Christians do, not what is spiritual, not what seems what's right. You ought to have the Bible down in such a way in your life that everything you deal with, you know what's biblical and it's scriptural. That's the key. Now, here's the million-dollar question. How does God give us direction to keep us from screwing up our lives? And remember now, remember, the devil's a great imitator. He'll imitate everything. Let me tell you something. If you don't have this one facet down that I'm talking about this morning, and we've not got to it yet, we're going to get there in a minute. I'm giving you some illustrations to emphasize my point. You know what I think the greatest example in history is? There's a guy by the name of Martin Luther. Now, here's a man that we're all worthless compared to. Martin Luther lived around 1483 to 1546. He was the one that brought about, single-handedly, what we know today in church history as the Reformation. And the Reformation was basically Martin Luther stepping out and coming to the point where he broke with the Roman Catholic Church. He was an incredibly fearless man. He was one of the most fearless men that you'll ever read about in church history. His doctrine wasn't the greatest in the world, but when God needed a super super dynamo sledgehammer to break the shackles of the Roman Catholic Church, he found it in Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, which was rare for his day, lived to the ripe old age of 80 or so years old. Roman Catholic Church could never kill him. They hated him. But he broke the back of the Roman Catholic Church and really ushered in what we know as the great Philadelphian church age that started uh, at that particular time. But he's one of the greatest examples of what illustrates what I'm trying to tell you and getting to my point. He was a Roman Catholic priest. And Martin Luther was empty inside. Martin Luther knew that the church did not fill his need for his relationship with Christ. And he was a sincere man. Martin Luther is probably one of the most incredible men in the history of Christianity from studying his desire to have a, a better relationship with God. And Martin Luther, he listened to what everybody said, and he, he did everything everybody told him to do. He, would, he was a priest. He would go to the bishop. He would go to the archbishop. He would go to the cardinal. He would go up the chain of command, and he would say to them, I don't have what I need to have with God. I don't have the relationship with God. I'm empty inside. There's more to this. I can't find it. You told me that the Catholic Church was everything and I would find it. All right, I'm here, but I can't find it. You know what they told him? They said, well, Martin, you need to, you need to fast. And you need to fast for a week, two weeks. 
Because through that fasting is the only way God is going to come into your world. So you know what Martin Luther did? He fasted. Oh, he wasn't like us, because they didn't have McDonald's back then. <clears throat> he, wasn't, he wasn't like us. He didn't go. He went a week, two weeks, three weeks. And that didn't help him. And he went to somebody else, and they said, well, <clears throat> the reason why is because you're not paying your penance. He says, you need to whip yourself. You need to inflict pain on your body. So you know what Martin Luther, Martin Luther did? He was a much better Christian than you and me. He got himself a whip. And he whipped himself till the blood ran down his back. That didn't help. <clears throat> Somebody else said, the reason why you're not finding God is because you're talking too much. You need to take a vial of silence and don't speak for, for a year. He never spoke a word to anybody. Never found God. Somebody said, well, you're not making enough penance. <clears throat> God is in this church. And there's something obviously wrong with you that you can't find God. You need to get on your knees before God and search Him out. How many times have you heard me say that to you? Oh, but their get on your knees and search it out was different than mine. You know what they told him to do? There's 400 steps up to the top of this cathedral. Every day of your life, get on your knees. God is in the church, Martin. You obviously got a problem. <clears throat> Every day of your life, crawl up those 400 steps on your knees, and you'll find God. Every day of his life, for six months, his knees were so bloodied. His knees were so battered. His knees and everything from his whippings on his back to the knees to the vial of silence to the fasting and all the things that he did. And the answer was nothing from God. No answer from God. Nothing from God. And all the things that he did that you and I pale in comparison. No. You know how he found his answer from God? The same way you and I will find our answers from God because it's the only way God answers us. Martin Luther went through everything that God's people talk about today in an extreme sense. And God never, I mean, wouldn't you think that God would stand up there and say, boy, I'm going to take pity on that guy. I'm going to give him just a little bit of an answer. I'm going to drop just a little, little, I know we don't have them yet, but somebody get me a tract. I'm going to float it down just to say, hang on, Martin. You got nothing. Now, why would God, with a man that dedicated, who when he finally got plugged in, turned the world upside down for God? You think God would have cut him some slack and said, I'll get this to you quicker so we can get moving faster? No. No. I'm going to tell you something, folks. It's not about your timing and my timing. It's about his timing. You want to get in. The older I get, and I'm not really that old, but the older I get, I'm not old as Scott yet. The older I get, the older I get, the less in a hurry I get. Because I've, if I've learned anything, the number one problem we have is the fact that we want it now and we're not willing to wait and pay the dues to have it in God's timing. Boy, I look at Martin Luther's story, and I think to myself, why didn't, why didn't God come down and do something for him? Why didn't God come down and say, Martin, I'm going I'm to cut this thing short for you. 
I mean, I mean, for six months, Martin, you've been bloodying your knees. You've whipped your back till you bleed to, almost to death. I'm going to help you out. No, God did not. Because God never violates his own principles. And there's a theory behind getting your prayers answered. And Martin, like you and I, was going and looking everywhere except where he should. And it wasn't until he got into the Bible. And God led him to Romans chapter 1 verse 17 where it says, The just shall live by faith. That Martin got what he was looking for. I'm telling you folks. When you pray, you talk to God. And you lay out your need. When you read your Bible, God talks back to you and gives you the answer through the principles found in His Word. And that's why I keep pushing it. That's why I keep hammering it. That's why I keep it before you. Everything that we do, you have got to learn Bible principles in your life or you're never, never going to do anything meaningful for God. Remembered our tabernacle example. Three things in that in that. Furnishings in that second section. The Word of God. The Holy Spirit of God. And, the, and our prayers to God. God never, never steps outside those three furnishings in our tabernacle. And you can be like Martin Luther. And you can do everything. Whip yourself. Beat yourself. Starve yourself. And until you do it God's way, you ain't getting squat. Look at Romans chapter 8 verse 26 again. Thank you. I appreciate that. That was your version of amen. Verse 26, Romans 8. Likewise, now watch this. The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself. Now you see there? There's not the Spirit himself. There's the Spirit itself. You catch that? What does that mean? How come the Spirit of God here is not in a person? How come it's an it? Or itself. I'll tell you why. Because when you find the Holy Spirit of God, this is how you learn your Bible, when you find the Holy Spirit of God, not a person, but like into an it or an itself, it's not talking about the person of the Holy Spirit of God. Here it comes. It's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit of God. You know what he's getting ready to show you? He's getting ready to show you how you get your prayers answered by the Holy Spirit of God living inside you, by the Word of God the Holy Spirit of God wrote, and puts the two of them together, and you get your prayers answered. Now pay attention. The Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, I know when you fasted, you thought your stomach was making groanings that could not be uttered. That's not what we're talking about. And he, and he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. There's the Word of God. Let this mind be in neutral also in Christ Jesus. But he that searches the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according. Now here it comes to the will of God. See, the will of God comes into this. And we're going to get into that next week. But right now I want you to see the basis of how God answers your prayers. You ask. You have a need. You have something that you, a dilemma you're in. The Spirit of God reads your heart. 
it then does its work and makes intercession for you, and the answer comes back to you through the mind of the Spirit. Because he that searches your heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. He gets your heart lined up with the biblical principle based on a circumstance you find yourself in. Now that's why, ladies and gentlemen, this church can't ever change its stand on this book. It can't ever get to the place where it's modernized and we have a, a, a contemporary service where we minister to contemporary Christians. This is not a cafeteria or a smorgasbord. This is a city union mission soup kitchen. We only serve one thing here. We don't have a church where you come in and you say, Man, I don't like that. Oh, I like those. Oh, those are nice. Mm. Oh, no, thank you. Oh, excuse me. Mm. Uh, yes. Oh, you've got sharp hips. Uh, you know, and... and and, oh, I don't like. Ooh, I don't like that. Oh, I don't. You know what? There's nothing I like here today. Good. Leaves more for us. I'm telling you, folks. God has a way that He does things, and it's an absolute way. And the bottom line is simply this. And this is why we're in the problems we're in today in Christianity, and i.e. the world. We're in a changing world. But we have an unchanging Bible. Churches ought to be as unchanging as this Bible in the changing world. You don't reach the world as a Christian by changing to be like the world. You reach the world by being separate from the world. While the world changes, you stay with the book. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. God never steps outside those three furnishings in our tabernacle. Why? Because the thing about God, and the greatest thing about God that I've ever learned in my life is that God, and you can take this to the bank, and this is why it is so important to see this. God will never violate his own principles. You know how you know if the devil does something for you or God does something for you? You know how going back to that young man that wanted to move to St. Louis or did move to St. Louis and messed up his life and messed up his world? You know what he should have done? He should have used the biblical principles. He should have realized that God, no matter how bad you want to do something, no matter how right it looks, no matter how sweet it sounds or how nice it tastes, God will never, never, under any circumstances, violate the principle involved in any given circumstance. I asked you a while back, how do you know when the devil's doing something versus when God's doing something? He imitates him all the way. How do you know? How do you know if it's God in your life or it's the devil in your life? Don't, please don't tell me that the devil, when we start to come to church, that you drive down there, he's sitting in the back seat and you're coming down 40 Highway, that he says, hey, slow up, Bob. Slow up down here. Pull in the tool shed. I'm going to go in there and I'll just wait for you in there till you get out. I'm going to go in there with all those unsaved people. I'm going to carouse around. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get in there with all those. I, will, I don't want to be down there where church is at. I want to be in there where my people are. No, 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 no. He would much rather be in every decision you make in your life than he would be down there. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the million-dollar question is this. How do you know it's God in your life versus the devil in your life? How do you know it wasn't God? How, that young man, why, how should he have known that it wasn't God selling his house but it was the devil selling his house. How should he have known that it wasn't God? And I'll tell you the answer is simple. 
The devil will always violate God's principles. God will never violate his principles. That's why when you learn the principles, you're never in a danger of making a bad choice. You're never in a danger. Every given circumstance and situation in your life, I'm going to go through them here in a moment. Not to the degree I'd like to, but, but I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. Now, I, I know what some of you are saying right now, and I know. I can hear it. I can hear it. Let me, let me calm your fears. You're all going to die. No, I'm just kidding. Let me, let me calm your fears. I know what some of you are saying. You're saying, well, look, I'm just a young Christian. I've been coming to this church. I'm just being discipled. I just got saved two, three months ago. Well, I just come back to God, you know, six months ago. I'm going through this process. I, I believe with what you say, Bob, and I hear what you're saying. But the bottom line is, at my stage in my life, how do I do that? How do I get to the point in my life now where I don't make a lot of bad choices? Hey, let's face it. We're faced with choices every day. Some of those choices we make bad, we get away with. Some of them haunt us for the rest of our lives. You're saying to me, well, I'm just a young Christian. I'm just trying to get my foot in the door. I'm being discipled by this person. Or I'm, I'm coming to Scott Shankle's class. I really want to learn. I really want to be everything God. But what do I do? You just painted a bleak black picture because I don't know anything about the Bible principles. Hey, what do you think the church is for? You realize when Jesus Christ went back to heaven, his physical body in Acts chapter 1 and 2, he replaced himself with, with three things. You know, the first thing he replaced himself with was the Holy Spirit of God. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God comes like a mighty rushing wind, and it fills believers. That had never happened before in the history of the world. Why? Because Christ had just went back to heaven, and now he has to replace himself with something here to carry on what he wants to do. And that thing comes in three installments. You know what the second thing was? The Word of God. By the time 90 A.D. rolls around, John writes the last books of the Bible. Now the Bible's complete. Now we have the second part. We have the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside you. You have the Word of God that now is your roadmap of life that the Holy Spirit of God is going to show you how to do it. Now you need a, you, you got to realize that God has something that He wants you to do. You need a vehicle. The third aspect was the local church. That's my job. My job. My standard thing to you. When in doubt, find out. Don't face any major decision in your life without finding what the biblical principle is. I've got a number of you on those cards that you're going through the principles. You're learning how to use them. You don't do it overnight, but that's why God gave you church. You go to most churches in this town, you couldn't even get in to see the pastor if you had a problem, let alone spend an hour a week with him. My job is onefold. That is to make sure that you have everything in your life to get what God has for you and to help you learn those principles. That's our job. And now I've got other people that are farther along and coming down the line, and they're, they're doing the same thing with other people. But ladies and gentlemen, young Christians, you need to get this down and listen to this. Nothing in this world, nothing in this life, or anybody else or anything will ever give you the right to override the biblical principles in your life because, ladies and gentlemen, they are there for a reason. You're all raising kids, most of you. You have little kids. Our elementary division is full of them. And you know what? As those kids, do you just allow those kids to do whatever they want to do? 
Don't you have, I would hope you do, don't you have rules in your, in your home? Don't you have policies that they've got to follow? Don't you have certain things that they can do and they can't do? Don't they know, don't they know where the line is? Don't you have a, a set of principled guidelines that your child knows this is okay, this is not okay, and this is where I'm at? Okay. Your goal is to when they grow up, those same principles that you instilled in them at eight, at four, five, six, seven, and eight are going to be automatic by the time they get 16, 17, 18, and 19. Well, Christians are the same way. I told you through the seven stages of spiritual growth, some of you come in your babies, some of you come in your little children, some of you come in your children, some of you get to the point of young men, some of you get to the, on up that scale. And you know what? You learn the basic principles now and then you build them in your life as you grow. God answers your prayers, supplies your needs, your request through the principles of this book. Now, I want to show you one of the greatest examples in the Bible, and this is where I want you to turn. I want you to come over to Acts chapter 20. I want to show you, I want to show you another. We looked at Martin Luther. I cannot not give you this one. This is absolutely, probably the greatest illustration. And my prayer this morning is that God permeates this on your mind. Acts chapter 20. Now, I don't know of a better example of a violated principle that led to a disaster in a man's life in the Bible, better than this one. And this is the story of the Apostle Paul when he refuses to listen to the principles of the Word of God and goes down to Jerusalem. I want you to see this. Now, i got to say this to you. And I want you to get this first. In my mind, in my way of thinking, from what I know about life, Bible, and history, the Apostle Paul is probably the greatest Christian that ever lived. You say, well, Christ was better. We have a, you, they're not the same sense. As far as a man born again and saved and then gave his life to God, there probably is not a more fruitful, a better example of a child of God anywhere in the Bible. I, I get amused today how that, you know, even in politics, you know, Barack Obama likes to tag himself with FDR, you know, or Abraham Lincoln, you know, or, or they all like Harry Truman. Uh, people like to associate themselves with people because we look back on that person in history. He's very credible, so we think if we line ourselves up with him, talk like him, do things like him, and, and act like him, people will think that we have credibility. I, it drives me crazy when I hear preachers uh, or even people talk about their pastors, uh, you know, and pa pastors referring themselves to the Apostle Paul. Let me tell you something. There ain't a man on this planet today. Probably hadn't been a man on this planet since Paul. There could ever tie his shoestrings. Paul, without a doubt, was the greatest single man who was probably the greatest single example outside of Christ that you and I will ever have about everything you ever wanted to know about the Christian life, going into the ministry, and everything concerned with it. I do not know of a greater man who walked this planet, who loved God, who did what with God, who came from the extreme other side like most of us did, and then found Christ, and then gave his life over to him. There is no better example and probably no better Christian in all of the New Testament than the Apostle Paul. But I want you to see this. Like every good Christian, he had a burden. See, Paul was a Jew. And Paul knew that before he got saved, and this haunted Paul all of his life. You hear him talking about it in his testimony. <clears throat> before Paul got saved, he used to persecute Christians, Jews. He used to put them in jail. He used to torture them. He used to have them killed. That was his job. 
In fact, when he met Christ on the road to Damascus, he's on his way hearing that there's an old past Baptist church down in Samaria someplace. He's going to have them all go arrested and tortured and murdered and killed. But what happens? The Lord appears to him and he gets saved. He never got out from under the burden from his people. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, in Romans chapter 9 is that great chapter we'll get into in Romans long chapter 11. It talks about our understanding of the nation of Israel. And he says this. He said, you know what? And I'm going to paraphrase. He said this. He said, you know what, folks? I'm saved, and I'm going to heaven. And I know I'm God's man. But you know what? If I could die and go to hell, if I could reverse the process, if I could make a deal with God, if I could get God to listen to me, I would gladly die and go to hell if my countrymen Israel could find Christ. He says, I wish myself a curse for the nation of Israel. That was his burden. He had a tremendous burden for his own people. And Paul has this mindset that he's got to go down to Jerusalem. That he's got to go down and he's got to reach the Jews. And he is so burdened. And he so has such a desire that he literally talks himself into thinking that God is in it. Now, I want to show you two verses. These are probably for your life and my life of where you're at and some of the decisions you're going to have to make down the line is probably the greatest thing you'll ever see. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Get that in one hand and then get Acts chapter 21, verse 4 in the other. I want you to get them where you can flip from one to the other. We're going to go to Acts 20, 22 first, and then we're going to flip right over. The key to here is being able to see them quickly. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. And now behold... I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. All right, look at Acts 21.4. And finding certain disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Now, let me ask you a question. Anybody see something strange between those two verses? Raise your hand. I want to see how many do first before I ask. Somebody, anybody see anything strange there? And I know maybe, don't feel bad if you don't. Don't feel bad if you don't. It's okay. But this is a lesson. If you're reading this and you know what, what do you see that's strange between verse, the first verse and the second one I read? Anybody? Keep your hand up. I just want to see how many we got here. How many we got? Here? Uh, Terrence, what do you see? Spirit is capitalized in the second one. It's lowercase in the first one. You know what that shows me? That shows me when I read the first one, it was Paul's own flesh that had convinced him to go. Wasn't God's spirit that called him down there? It was Paul's flesh that called him down there. His burden got overwhelming and his burden got over, over the top. And what it did is he allowed his burden to override the principle that God had given to him. Now God tells him two times. Really he tells him four times, but we're going to look at the two he does here that we have in four of us. Look at Acts chapter 21 verse 4. Now he goes down there and he finds certain disciples. And we tarried there seven days who said to Paul, through the Spirit. Principle number one, don't go down to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 21, verse 10, same chapter. Verse 10, and as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was coming to us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, 
So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that weareth this girdle onto this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Two times God gave him the principle, don't go. Paul is so burdened by his own burden that he overrides the very principles. And you certainly do know the rest of the story. He has convinced himself that this is what God wants him to do. This is what the boy going to St. Louis convinced himself he was going to do. Two times God tells him, gives him the principle, don't go. But he's so sure he's right that he exercises his spirit over God's principle and let's see what happens now. As Dr. Phil would say, again, how'd that work out for him? One, it was a disaster. Two, he got shipwrecked. They lost everything they had. They got in the middle of a terrible storm. You know what the name of that storm is? Somebody tell me what that storm's name is. What is it? Eurachlodon. Eurachlodon. Yeah, I can spell it for you. U-R-A-C-K-A-D-O-N. Eurachlodon. Capitalize it. Somebody tell you what Eurachlodon means. What kind of, what, 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 what does that mean? Oh, yes, you're just full of little answers today. What do you got? Where did you get that from? Institute. Institute. Oh, glad to see somebody's learning some stuff. Real loud, Nikki, say what it is. Real loud, like you're yelling at him. It's a storm where the wind changes, so you can't stay on track. A boat can't stay on track. It's a wind that keeps changing. See, back then they had sail ships. And they had to get wind in the sails, and you, had to, you, get, you, kept, you kept the sail to the direction of the wind, and it pushed you along. But an Arachlodon wind, an Arachlodon wind is the worst kind of storm to be in because the wind keeps changing directions, therefore you can't sail a straight course because the wind keeps changing. Where if it's coming from the east, you can sail to the west. If it's coming from the north, you can sail to the south. Or you can change the rigging. But when the wind keeps changing every direction it goes, you're stuck. You violate God's principles and he'll put you in a storm that the winds change every time you try to go another way. And you'll wind up shipwrecked. You want to talk about the perfect storm? Now I got to ask you a question. Now why did God allow? Now you got to think this thing through. Why did God allow the greatest Christian that ever lived that I don't find another time in his life where he even thought about doing something wrong? I can't find where he belched at a meal. I can't find where he ever slammed a door in an old woman's face. I can't find where he ever said a foul word to anybody. In every example of his life, it is 100% right on the money Why did God let a man who had that kind of integrity, who is the example in the Bible for you and for me, and everything in life, why did God, who he had done 99.9999999% of the time right, let him get shipwrecked, end his ministry, and come to the point where he got into a storm that they lost everything and ultimately, ultimately took him to Rome where they killed him? You know why? Let me give you the answer in another question for him. 
If God didn't spare the greatest Christian to ever live because he'd violated the principles, who in the world do you think we are? If God held the greatest Christian that ever lived to the authority of the principles and wouldn't cut him any slack, who in the world do we think we are? Well, we have got a conceited, bloated image of ourselves. If God held him to the principle, my God, people, what is he going to do to you and me? See how these things work? You see, when you know the principles, and this is what I try to teach you, I don't care if it's Monday night or Thursday night. I don't care if it's Sunday morning. I don't care if it's institute. I don't care if it's in whatever we do. I'm always pointing out the principles. When you come in and you have an issue in life, and we try to start working through it, what is the first thing I do? And I, if I would ask for a show of hands, probably half of you young Christians are doing this right now. You get your little three-by-five cards, and you start identifying the issue, the problem, the thing you got, and then you write down the principle. Why do I do that? Because I want you to begin to learn to use the principles for every given situation you find yourself in. Let me tell you something. A strong Christian doesn't waste time asking God for an answer to his issue, which 90% of God's people do. If he knows the book and he knows the principles, then he knows what God would say in any situation he finds himself in. He just has to follow the rules of the day and the principles for any given situation. And that's why it's so important to learning this book. Understanding how God will answer your prayers. A theory behind how he does that. You know, many of you now have worked with me for almost four years. Some of you longer than that. And you're working with me with multiple people. And I purposely have put people in your life that I thought were complicated people. Because uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, I see, uh, you know, that those are the best way for you to learn. I had somebody ask me this week, and, and I've I'd had several conversations with my people this week that, that, you know, one of the things that I'm learning is I'm watching how that you are becoming very good at dealing with people. I, I was talking to somebody this week, and somebody was asking me, why did you put so-and-so to work with so-and-so? And I said, well, I said, you want the honest truth? And I said, you can learn from this. Don't take this in a bad way. I said, after being in the ministry as many years as I have, you can pretty much tell if somebody is going to make it or they're not going to make it. I mean, uh, there are people that come in that are just submerged over their head with problems. And when you add a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction to that and you add all kinds of factors into it, the chance, and, and, and this is not, I'm not a prophet, no, I'm not predicting, I'm just saying, through the experience of dealing with people, there are, you know what, you can put so many things in your life that I don't care what you do, you ain't getting back to God. And before I go any farther, it has nothing to do with God not wanting you to come back. It has to do with you painting yourself in such a small corner you can't get back. I mean, you put alcohol in your body for 10, 15, 20 years and try to quit, I guarantee you, it'll rule you, you won't rule it. You get marijuana and stuff and drugs in your system and you get your body attention to that, you have no idea how those kind, of, uh, those kind of substance abuses alter your body and get you addicted to them. That you think you're just going to walk away. Oh, I'm saved. I got the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, greater is he that's in me. Oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, try it for about six months and see what happens to you. You're in a fight for your life, folks. Do you know that? You know what the principle is on it? The principle is simply this. Sin never leaves a man better than it finds him. 
That's why the Bible says for a young man, young lady, remember now thy creator days of thy youth before the evil days come. Stay chaste, stay pure, stay away from that stuff. Don't get that stuff in your system. You'll have enough things in your life you've got to deal with without putting something in that's going to shackle you to this world. Bible says a three-fold cold, not easily broken. You heard me say it before. Take a little piece of thread. Pop. Wrap it on your finger. Pop. Take that same little piece of thread. About that, you know, measure it six inches. Then measure another six inches. Measure another six inches. Measure a hundred six-inch pieces of that thread. You take one little six-inch, pop. You take that one little inch and, and, and say, watch this. Want to press your girl some night? Tie that thread around my finger. Watch this, honey. Ooh. Okay, tough guy. Just imagine every six-inch thread as a glass of booze, a cigarette, a hit on a joint. I love that kind of talk. <laughs> what did I just say, Zach? Hit on a joint, does that mean you held up a bar? No, okay. <laughs> Six inches. Whatever your little deal is, take that. You got a hundred of them now. Take it. One time you break it. Take that little six inches. Wrap it around a hundred times. You'll die before you break it. See, it's never a question of, will God, will God let you come back? There's never a question, will God take you back? There's never a question, can I, the question is, can you get back? That's the question. Because you get yourself far, far out in left field, you just can't get back. See, you take my glasses one more time, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> Many of you, when you come in here in our church and you sit down with me for the first time, you're in situations over your head. When a person comes into me and asks me a question and he's got some problems or she got some problems, first of all, I never give them my opinion. My opinion is worthless. I never tell them what to do because I don't have to live your circumstances. What I will do is show you the biblical principles. I will show you the consequences of where you're at versus the good consequences of where you need to go. Then I will, if you want to, I will put, enact a plan in your life and put as many people, as many things, as many circumstances, and me, myself, right in the middle of it to help you get out of it. That's the way. But we will do it one principle at a time. Understanding how God answers your prayer. I started to say, many of you have worked with me in dealing with people, and you know what? You're getting good at it. I talked to two separate people this week that dealt with circumstances. And in both cases, as I was listening to them tell me how they handled it, in my mind, I was, I was, they were telling me what they were saying, what they had said to this person or what they were dealing with this person. And I, in my mind, I was getting ready to say to them the next thing they ought to do. And before, while I was thinking it and getting in my own mind, they went ahead and said exactly what I was thinking and laid out the principle exactly the way that I would have done it. You see, you're getting good not because you're any smarter than the person sitting next to you. You're good at what you do and you're getting it better at what you do because you're learning the theory behind what you do. You're using principles. And there's nothing better that will get you closer and into the book more than using what you know in somebody else's life. And uh, it's a situation that, that, that it what makes men and women and gives them the ability. Now, if you'd come into me this week and you'd say to me, Bob, I lost my job. I give you 10 principles how to deal with losing your job in prayer. Somebody come in to me and say, Bob, my child's really sick. I give you five principles right off the top of my head that you ought to be claiming. 
Somebody says, I got sick, I got cancer, I got, I, I, how should I proceed? I got all kinds of circumstances that I got to face with. I could give you 20 principles right off the top of my head to help you make the right decision so you don't make a bad one. You say, I, 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 I want to be a pastor, I want to get into the ministry. I give you seven absolute principles you've got to have and 20 other ones that's got to fit into that that will make you successful in ministry. Well, you say, well, Bob, I, I've been praying, and well, God just didn't answer my prayer. I give you five off the top of my head and one of the greatest passages in the Bible, no two in the Bible, that will show you how to deal with that kind of circumstance and situation. You say, I have an addiction. I got 20 uh, verses for you at least that will give you everything you need to know to work through those things if you'll hold yourself accountable to them. You say, well, Bob, I've just tried and tried and tried, and I just cannot get the victory in my life. I can give you 30 principles right now that will get you on the road if you'll do it. To getting the victory. You say, well, I got a grandma on life support, and they want us to pull the plug. What do I do? I give you 10, I give you 10 principles right now to tell you what to do. Pull that sucker. No, I'm just kidding. I give you 10 principles right now to tell you what to do. You say, well, I got a medical decision I got to make. I give you five principles right now that will tell you how to deal in that scenario. You say, well, I just got married. Well, suicide. That's the best way you can get out of that. Somebody says, I just got married, and we, we, we want to have some kids. How does God look at that? How many kids should I have? I'll give you five principles to tell you right now how many kids you should have. You think I'm, hey, somebody said, well, I just got a new puppy. I'll give you two principles right now in that book that tells you how to deal with a new puppy. You think that book doesn't cover it all? Say, I got a cat. Cat, too. I got a canary. Oh, shut up. Canaries, too. Somebody says, I like to hunt. I'll give you two principles right now on hunting in the Bible. And it'll define what kind of person you are. Oh, you, that book is everything God said it is. Operating your life without knowing the theory behind the things you do, especially your prayer life, is a disaster. We spend so much time telling God our woes but absolutely no time reading the Bible, collecting the principles to see what he says about it, what we ought to do. We need to quit telling God what he already knows. God, I, God, I lost my job. Oh, no kidding. When did that happen? <laughs> you lost your job? Oh, my goodness. Who didn't tell me up here that Bob lost his job? You? He knows that. Oh, God, I've got some incurable disease. No. When did that all happen? You, you just got, you had an appointment with a doctor? Why didn't you give me that appointment date? I would have been there. See what I'm saying? God already, God already knows those things. And next week I'm going to show you why those things come into your life. Quit telling God what he already knows. Find the principle that tells you what to do in any given circumstance. And then just simply say, God, this is the situation I find myself in. I am so glad that you did not leave me in this by myself. Because God, you've showed me through this story right here. Or this principle here. Or Bob preached this two weeks ago. Or I found this on my own. There's the principle that I need to get through those. I'm going to take those principles. And so I don't forget them. Because you know what? This is scary. 
and my emotions could overwhelm me. And I have a tendency to be flighty anyhow. And what happens is, is when, when things start to move me and shake me, I have a tendency because one of my infirmities is my flesh, one of my infirmities is my forgetting, and one of my infirmities is my prayer life. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to write these things out on a three-by-five card, and every time I feel scared, every time I feel like I'm weak, every, I'm going to go to those principles, and through those principles, you're going to give me, guide me to more principles, and every level of this circumstance that I go through is going to be another set of principles till I get through the other side of it. So God, I'm not asking you to fix it. I'm not asking you to change it. I'm not asking why. God, I'm not asking you to fix it. I'm not asking you to change it. I'm not asking why. I'm just God already got the principles. I'm just asking for you to bless these principles in my life and help me follow them. See what I'm saying? Boy, that's a difference in what most of our prayer life is like, isn't it? Listen, for the last 30 years of my life, until the day I die or the Lord takes us out of here, I will never cease to keep before you the number one aspect of the Christian life, and that is the, in everything that we do that must be based on biblical principles. I'll teach them to you Sunday morning, Thursday night, Bible Institute, one-on-one. You come in to me for problems and counseling, or I can help you anyway. It'll be based on the principles. The Bible and its principles are the only constant in this world. It's the only absolutely truth in any age. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now maybe you won't listen. Happens all the time. Maybe you'll mess your life up royally. But I'm going to tell you something. This church has to and always will be based on the unchanging truths and the principles of the Word of God. As we see this old world, our country, literally, before our eyes, you can almost day by day see it spinning out of control. We are going from what we started with our founding fathers in a republic which is based on biblical principles to a democracy which is, on, which is on, on, on popular opinion and we're sliding right down the path of socialism. We're seeing values change, ideas change, beliefs change, morals change, Christianity has changed and everything that you have to deal with in your life. These changes affect every decision. They affect your family. They may affect where your kid goes to school. They may affect what you do. They may affect in every aspect. It's going to put you in a position that you not only have to deal with them, but you have to make decisions about them. And you better understand that wasting God's time by throwing up goofy prayers when He's already given you the answers that are in this book. Okay, if you don't know what they are, no problem. Get with me and let me show you the process. If you already know, begin using them even better than you already are. Don't make a decision in your life. Don't make any major catastrophic thing in your world that you aren't 100% sure that it's not you wanting to do it over what God wants you to do. Remember, the greatest Christian ever lived, God let him screw up his life, get shipwrecked in a storm that he could not get out of. Who in the world do we think we are? Keep your prayer life consistent. Know the theory. Know the theory behind how God answers your prayers. Now, we looked at two aspects. Last week, I showed you the misconceptions of prayer. This week, we went some more of those, but we looked at, okay, how does God answer my prayer? Now, next week, I'm going to show you how to pray. I'm going to show you how to pray. I'm going to show you how to use Romans chapter 8, verse 26, 27, and 28 and make it work in your life. I'm going to show you the idea of how to work these three things. I'm going to show you next week how fasting does fit in. I'm going to show you next week why it's so important that that, that, that 
that fire from the prayer, the incense, and the candlestick had to come off that brazen altar. I'm going to take the time. I've, I've given you two aspects of it. I've showed you the misconceptions, and I showed you why uh, uh, the aspect of, of, of how God answers your prayer. Now, next week, we had to get those out of the way first. Next week, I'm going to show you. Now that you know this, how do you pray? How do you pray? How do you get your prayers answered, and what do you do if your prayers don't get answered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the